Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a Lip Media podcast. Deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women, deviant women. Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and a contemporaneity. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lauren. Welcome to the show. We've had a pretty good couple of weeks, haven't we? We have, here on the show or individually? Here oh, on the show. Yeah, here on the show. We have. We've had a lot of new listeners we coming ha- on board. It's been really exciting. We have been charting in Australia. We were featured on the Apple homepage. It's so, if you are new to joining us, Welcome. Hello. Nice to have you on board. It's nice to meet you all. And it's nice to be getting a few new reviews yes. as well filtering through. So please keep those coming because if you are new to the show and if you are enjoying what we do. Then Especially we... if you think it's five stars worthy. <laughs> That's right. We'd love to hear your reviews. Or you can keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs> That's right. You <laughs> certainly can. But really, it really does help. And it's been such an amazingly exciting week just to see those numbers sort of climb and get all, you know, it feels a bit special. It does feel. Because we've been at this for a while. We have. We've been, you know, hitting our heads against the wall (laughs) for three years now. Have we? I feel like it's been more pleasurable than that for me. Oh, (laughs) really? Yeah, no, there's been some good times. Okay, good. (laughs) It's all right. There's been some good times, yeah. But, yes, we're we're coming towards, sort of towards the end of our third season now. I know. We've got, oh, gosh, off the top of my head, we've got about, what, five or six episodes left? I reckon, yeah. And that'll be it. But then we'll be... Coming on back at you for a season four. Season four in 2020. The Roaring Twenties. Oh, yeah, I know. So exciting. Are we going to become like flappers and I... just wear nothing but like little flapper gowns? Is that going to be our... I'm hoping so. I would really love to get some flapper gowns. I have been brushing up on my Charleston recently. And I suppose, well, the Charleston's not particularly relevant to today's episode but it's in the ballpark this period of time is actually yeah pretty relevant we're getting close actually we are though going to the teens which is close we'll veer into the 20s a little bit yeah we've nearly finished our own teens but you're talking about the 19 the 19 teens teens. most of today's episode i realized when i was finishing my notes the other day takes place 100 years ago which is really weird because when i think about 1919 i don't think of it as being 100 100 years years ago. ago yeah wow you know it's like when you realize that the 70s aren't 20 years ago anymore no that's right you know and then you go no fuck Time keeps moving in this <laughs> yeah. weird progressive the fashion. The 90s were 20 years ago. Shut up. And next year, the year 2000 will be 20 years ago. Oh, crazy. But we're going to go back actually to the very, very late 19th century first. Okay, that's herein is where we begin our yeah. tale. Yeah, the, and it is the tale of a spectacular woman. I've had such a rad time <laughs> doing this research 
This woman, this woman, can I just say, she is spectacular. She is outrageous. She is an androgynous, bisexual, drug-addicted, nude cabaret dancer by the name of Anita Berber, and it's German, forgive my pronunciation, I hope that that's in the ballpark, who, according to the biography by Mel Gordon, was uh, Weimar Berlin's priestess of depravity. Oh, what a title. Imagine becoming famous in your afterlife as Weimar Berlin's priestess of depravity. I, I Look, I'd be happy to be the priestess of depravity of anywhere, like Adelaide priestess of depravity. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have the same ring to it, though, Not quite, it? not quite. Not at all. Fabulous. Well, you have been pretty excited about it. It's a pretty excellent period of history. Mm. Let's go there. Let's right. do it. So before that, we've got to go to June 10, 1899, Ellipsig. I'm happy to do that. Let's get in the time machine. And we are with Felix Berber, a Wunderkind, a musician, <laughs> who became the first violinist with the municipal orchestra. Now, Felix, he was a little bit of a – he got around, all oh, right? Okay. He was yeah. a, a bit of a bro. Yeah. He wasn't just a Wunderkind. Um, he was a bit of a playboy. He was a Wunderkind. Mm, he was a, mm-hmm. And one of the women that he got around with was Lucy, an aspiring actress and singer. Now, unfortunately, she fell pregnant and so the two were married a little bit before Anita was born in 1899. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the marriage didn't last mm. and they divorced a few years later and so Anita was mostly raised by her grandmother in Dresden. While Felix went on to marry again, her mother... Lucy, she went back to Berlin to continue her cabaret career and she appeared in Rudolf Nelson's Chat Noir Cabaret. So ah, good for her. Excellent. Because that's not the normal story that you hear. The normal story that you hear is had the child mm-hmm. and then career over. Gave up her career for child. Excellent. I'm so pleased that she continued to perform. Okay. So, yeah, good for Lucy, but maybe not so much for Anita. Yeah. Because maybe it didn't work out so good for she her. She did get a little bit of abandonment complex I guess which is not surprising really she's been shipped off to her grandmother's she spent a lot of her youth being shipped around to various places but she did have performance in her blood Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and drama and and wunderkind yes (laughs) and her childhood in Dresden with her grandmother was quite respectable she was relatively well off yada yada but because of her parents scandal she became a little bit of an outcast, Mm. and she didn't have very many friends. She would take out her anger and abandonment issues on those around her, including on her dolls, whose faces she would apparently mutilate. (laughs) Oh, I like that. Mm. Oh, yeah. Dolls are a weird thing, aren't they? I just like, I don't actually recall ever playing with a doll in the fashion I was supposed to play with a doll. Really? Yeah, I actually used to like, all right, look, I had one Ken and I had a bunch of Barbies, Mm. right? It was a harem. And so I... At a very young age, used to spend <laughs> my time. I used to spend my time like kind of situating them in strange, orgiastic <laughs> positions, like seeing how I could fit them together. Really, what, what a fucked up child! That would never have occurred to me. And then if I didn't do that, then I was thinking of ways I could kill them. Wow! Like I'd send them over a cliff in the Barbie car. Wow! Mine went on lovely camping holidays together. I'd hang them and had pool parties in their mansion. <laughs> Maybe this is a tangent we shouldn't go down. <laughs> Yeah, we had different Barbie experiences. <laughs> very, very different Barbie playing experiences. Mm. Well, Anita's more in your style and like <laughs> perhaps you were, she was becoming a little bit of a nightmare. Um, <laughs> Thanks. And so her grandmother, she placed her in the Jacques Dalcroze Institute, which was basically like very a... French. 
Yeah, well, it's a boarding school, co-ed boarding school with with an emphasis on psychophysical training. Oh, dear God. Yeah, and this new thing called Eurythmics. Hey, yeah. like Annie Lennox? Yeah. Sweet well, dreams are made of it. No, it, it, sadly it wasn't about learning the history of new wave synth pop. Oh, what a shame. But it was basically a way of teaching music through the senses, particularly through like movement and kinetics. You know what I mean? Sure. Right? It's kind of a little bit like dancing, but it's really about moving the body in response to and also independently of rhythm. So treating the body itself like an instrument. I just have such an image in my head of just interpretive dance. Yeah. No, I think it's more like, I mean, I grew up doing calisthenics, Mm -hmm. right, which is a little bit like a mix between ballet and gymnastics. Yeah. And I picture it as being perhaps a little bit more like that. It was quite regimented, I think. Um, So she was here for a few years before she was sent to live in Weimar to be with her mother when she was 14. So she came into the attention of a choreographer named Rita Sacchetto. Sacchetto in 1915 and Sacchetto choreographed what we would now think of as more kind of traditional ballet Mm. but her work was very avant-garde. She was known for the new German dance or here we go you ready? I'm ready. Ausdrunkstance. I was drunk dance. Ausdrunkstance. That's what I heard. I was drunk dance. Yes. (laughs) That's what that translates to. Which often displayed the naked female and androgynous form. Ooh. And here's a quote. Animated by kinesthetic expressions of sexual desire and psychophysical atmospherics. Wait, hang on. I need to back this up. How old is she? Isn't she in school? Yes. She's a teenager. And so she's... She's, she's not nude joined... dancing yet. Okay. All so right. Okay. So Sacchetto was, had choreographed this kind of thing oh, before. Okay. But that's not what Anita's doing. No. Anita's in her mm-hmm. like troop of young women. Okay. That keep their clothes on for the dance. Yeah. But it is still playing with these psychophysical mm. ideas and that. Eroticism, yeah. I guess. Erot- yeah. And it's really about the expression of the internal and external worlds coming together. Mm. And so in a lot of ways it's tapping into the ideas of the German expressionists who oh, were yes. starting to come mm-hmm. to the fore at the same time. And I'm going to talk about that soon. And so when she was just 16, she premiered at the prestigious Saal. I hope, again, I'm sorry about all of my German. Like, <laughs> Keep at it. You it's forgive right. me. I, I, I forgive you. You do. I and that's all that matters. Yeah, that's right. On February 24, 1916. And the event, okay, here we go. You ready for this? Oh, God, where's this going? The event was described by the chief of the theatre division of the Berlin Police Department. <laughs> what? Why did they have a theatre division? What does that mean? Yeah. The police department had a theatre division. Apparently. Like, <laughs> All right. Okay. Yes. Sure. Mine- this is to make sure that the theatre doesn't get too out of hand. Too rowdy. Too rowdy. Maybe yeah, it's okay. to prevent it from being too sexy. Yeah. Too scandalous. Or maybe they just had too many people to employ and they ran out of things <laughs> to be up. You you get traffic. You get, get theatre. Theatre. <laughs> run out. Theatre. I know, right? That's so weird. Anyway, the chief of the theatre division of the Berlin Police Department uh, said that it was an affront to public morality. Ooh. She was 16. And Anita's portrayal of Diana, you know, famous goddess. As in the myth? Oh, yeah, as in, yeah, the goddess Diana. Diana. Was so widely praised that photographic postcards were released of her. So she was off to a pretty good start. At 16? Yeah. She still has her clothes on. At this point, she does. I just want to keep checking on 
the fact yeah. <laughs> she's like checking on how old she is while when she's, the clothes while she's on. underage she does have her clothes on okay well okay she has her clothes on in public but in private she mm. was starting to you know experiment sexually with you know those in hey, her she's circle well she started a little bit younger than that because she actually started when she was at Jacques Delacroix uh, which as I said was a co-ed school yeah and I was gonna say before co-ed boarding school yes now <laughs> that is already just a really bad idea that's a bad idea yeah. right she apparently had her first love affair with this 17 year old boy named Hans and Hans. it said that she said his lovemaking was apparently not up to scratch and he was too bourgeois and so she dumped him. Oh, poor Hans. And then not long after when she was in Weimar, she caught the glance. And I actually, I really want to emphasize that she caught the glance of a handsome young dentist, a 23-year-old Dr. Lang. Hot dentist. While she was getting her hair done. In a turn of events that, as I said, is... Relatively refreshing when we have an age gap such as this. It was Anita who pursued him Mm. and eventually he proposed marriage. Oh, I love a hot dentist. I had a hot dentist for a while. Yeah, you did. Yeah. But you had to stop seeing him because he was too hot. He was too hot and I didn't (laughs) like him looking in my mouth in a non-sexual fashion. Not that many people look in my mouth in a sexual fashion. But (laughs) anyway, hot dentist. Her mother, Lucy, she was not really on board and, you know, she reminded Anita, look, love, you're a dancer. You have to keep yourself available. You can't just be marrying the first hot dentist that you meet. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's some truth to that, right? Isn't there? If you're a performer, she's a performer, right? Yeah. So she's performing fantasies in a Mm -hmm. way, in which case Mm -hmm. you want that fantasy to be something that even if not in reality, but at least in that fantasy that you're building up of that performer is yeah. something attainable. Like how the Beatles had to pretend they weren't married. Precisely. Yeah. Exactly what you just said. She has to play on the desires of her mm. audience. Mm-hmm. And part of her duties actually to uh, Sacchetto's company was to like quote unquote drum up business. So Ugh, I'm pulling it all yeah, face. You're pulling a weird face. But what I mean by that is is to like flirt with people and get them to come to the show. Mm. You know, you mm-hmm. want like uh, during Fringe when, you know, you're getting flyered. Yes. Except it's sexy. It's sexy you flyering. Know? Sexy flyering. Another thing that she did was she was go around to a lot of her mother's friends' houses asking them to come along to okay. the show. right. No. Hey, Mrs. So-and-so, you yeah. want to come to the you show? You should come to my sexy dance. Come and watch my sexy dance. You've known me since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Surely you want me to want to watch me dance well, sexily. One friend who did know her since she was as high as a grasshopper, was a 43-year-old crime novelist named Carl Walter. So she knocks on Carl's door and, and look, he was very surprised to see her because he was like, Anita, I haven't seen you since you were knee-high to a grasshopper. What are you doing here? And she told him she needed a a companion to join her at the theatre. And then apparently she uh, sauntered into his apartment, kicked off her shoes, dropped her dress and draped herself on his bed. Oh, she's the original Lolita. Well, it's complex, isn't it? It is. Well, Lolita's complex as well. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. complex because, yes, she's the one initiating all of this, but she's also very young. Yeah. And, and is she doing this at her mother's sort of behest? Well, or? I mean, look, they might have just said, hey, go out and, like, 
you know, chat to the people and get them to come to the show, do some flyering. So her mum's then her she's mother's gone like pimping her out. I right? don't think that her mother was pimping her out. No. I don't think so. Okay, let's like, go with that. I feel like this is Anita taking that to the next extreme. Right. Like she's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, you want me to fly her, eh? <laughs> I'll go do some fly. But at the same time, again, she is really young. So yeah. who knows how much she felt like she had to. But the type of person that she is as an adult, I think mm-hmm. we can assume that as a teenager she was still, you know, I mean, 16-year-old girls can be very themselves at that age right Mm -hmm. and they can be very in control of their own sexuality and so there's no saying that she wasn't yeah yeah Yeah. but it's just it's complex it sure (laughs) is so this guy shows up at the premiere he's like totally dumbstruck by this young woman who had I mean as you would be when if you're a 43 year old dude and then this young woman just walks into your apartment and throws herself at you he was like okay, I'll come to your show. So he came to her show. He had some flowers. He went backstage, of course, as you do afterwards to congratulate her. And there she was in her dressing room naked again. Oh, my God. But this guy's a gentleman. He asked Lucy. He asked her mother. He said, Lucy, may I date your daughter? I'm quite taken by her. And her nakedness in front of me. I'm very taken by her. And her mother replied that Anita was old enough to make up her own mind about who her paramours might be. And then that was it. And so the two of them did date for a while. I look, hey, I throw my hands up at this story. <laughs> I don't know. I've got no idea where to go with that. I don't know. None whatsoever. It did. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's complex. Like I said, I don't know what other word to give it except complex. But I guess we don't have her actual written voice about these accounts, do no, we? No, and a lot of these accounts come from her close friends mm-hmm. um, who I assume that she relayed this to. Yeah. And whether she did so with embellishments, yeah. you know, I don't know. But she's certainly very in control yeah. of her sexuality as an adult woman. Mm. And so it's not, look, yes, she's young but I don't get the sense that she was coerced Mm -hmm. from knowing the kind of person that she is. Yeah. I think she was very much in control of her own desires at this age. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's, it's a bit gross. (laughs) It is. It's not a bit gross. It's gross. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) So she continued performing and touring with Sacchetto's company where she started to grow more and more famous. She was not just becoming very popular, but she was becoming critically successful as well. And admirers praised her uniqueness and her natural ability. So she started appearing in um, a lot of magazines, like particularly very popular bourgeois women's magazines, such as Dayadama, which I guess means the woman. I guess. I don't know. Oh, Didama. Didama? Ah, yes, yes, yes. As in two words. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Didama. Yeah, the lady. Yeah, the lady. Yeah, yeah. The lady. However, some of her early critics drew attention to her lack of experience. And this isn't her lack of experience necessarily as a dancer, but her lack of life experience. You know, she was so young and naive and, and hadn't really lived yet. The true soul of expressionist ideals of individualism, you know? Critics basically could tell that she was pretending. Ah, okay, sure. So her performances didn't seem sort of sincere enough. Yeah, yeah. They're like, because again, if we think about the types of dances that they're doing, they're very sensual dances in a lot of 
cases Mm -hmm. and they are playing with that idea of the internal and the external world coming together. But a lot of people, I guess, are like, well, this sounds a little bit condescending, but what kind of an interior life does a 16-year-old have? To which I would say... Quite a complicated one. It's quite deep and complex. And I think that we can already see that Anita is... She's diving into this life of the, you know, Weimar expressionist artist. But she was quite young and she was quite inexperienced. And I'm going to, again, quote Mel Gordon here, who writes, Anita appeared outwardly to inhabit fantastic environs, yet an essential part of her personality was scenically absent. She lacked the emotional core of a true artist uniquely absent yeah he's quite colorful in a lot of his descriptions actually wow (laughs) scenically absent yeah but that's okay right she's young she's starting out she's got a lot of time ahead of her Yes, she does. Okay, that seems (laughs) ominous. She seems very ominous. She has some time ahead of her. Like she certainly has a lot of her career to come. So in 1918 she was cast in her first feature film, which was the story of Dida Ibsen. Basically it's the story of a young woman who flees her arranged marriage, ends up pregnant, opens a restaurant, marries a snake enthusiast, sadist, (laughs) and finally returns to her lover and her family to beg forgiveness. Which kind of sounds amazing. And <laughs> snake enthusiast yeah. saddest. Okay, so let me tell you about one scene. I hope so, he doesn't use his snakes in a sadistic fashion. Okay, well. <laughs> well, in one scene, Galen, the husband, pulls a cobra from his boot, which slithers around Dida's neck. Then a servant girl enters with a riding crop and commands him to his knees before she lashes him. Whoa. While the snake slithers around and then everyone gets sexy. Okay. Yeah. Reviews <laughs> called it clean and <laughs> thrilling. If clean un- fun. If understandably sick and unusual for a less enlightened public. Oh, less enlightened. <laughs> That's good. It's just good, clean snake. Good, clean s- whipping snake fun. sadist fun. <laughs> Who doesn't like a bit of snake sadism in the bedroom? Oh my god, that is so symbolic. There is so much going on. There. <laughs> so much going on. <laughs> And let's also keep in mind that, like, at this point in were history... Were any snakes harmed in the filming of this whipping? Oh, it was 1918. Yes. I can't guarantee so that they the, weren't. <laughs> all the snakes were harmed. Yeah, probably. Yes. Yeah, probably. They went through a lot of snakes. She went on to star in 23 films over the course Whoa. of her career. Nine of them were with Oswald, but not all of them were quite as well received as the story of Dida Ibsen. Okay. But like I said, even though she was starting to have the success, she was... Appearing as a model in magazines, she's in films, she's on the stage, but people still didn't feel like they knew the real Anita Berber. They knew her characters, mm-hmm. you know. But then one night, <laughs> one fateful night mm-hmm. at a party. At a party. At a party at a hotel in Vienna, she found the performer that she wanted to be. Oh, So at this party... Formative experience on its way. At this party, things are getting pretty wild. We've got people are drunk, obviously. They're probably on a bunch of cocaine as well. They are groping each other, getting drunk and rowdy. And she started dancing passionately with this woman. She began to palm the nipples of this woman until... Palm. 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 That's how it's described. Palm the nipples. This is what Gibson writes. Palmed the nipples of the girl until she nearly collapsed in, quote, orgasmic surrender. I'm sorry. Can I just say, please don't anyone take that as, like, no one go and palm someone's nipples. (laughs) No one's going to collapse in orgiastic. I guess it's just like a 
tweaking of her, but with the palm of the hand. You know, look, it could be very soft and sensual. Sure. Like a just a um This sounds so wrong. <laughs> palm my nipples. Thank you very much. I imagine that to be a, a sensual caress. caress. Okay, sure. A sensual mm-hmm. caress of yeah. the nipples. Yeah, just some poor words chosen until there. Until the girl collapsed in orgasmic surrender. Sweet. The crowd called out for Anita to dance. Dance, they said, dance. Then they started crying, naked, <laughs> naked. And so she did like a whirling dervish. She stepped out of her dress. Let it not the whirling dervishes step out of their dresses. <laughs> but true. she's spinning and she's dancing and she becomes nude. And I can just imagine the music is like careening towards some kind of that crescendo. crescendo. And everyone is so taken by oh. her orgiastic spinning and wild dancing her body is a weapon to those around her oh, and she's yeah, yeah. pummeling them with her beauty she's and... palming them with her beauty <laughs> and so afterwards she went into the bathroom she penciled two thick eyebrows on her face she blotted on green eyeshadow on her eyes and she painted her lips crimson red and so emerged anita berber the depraved vixen child <laughs> that was a beautiful performance lauren thank you thank you i'm so pleased i got to go on that ride <laughs> it was very good and again can we say for sure that this is exactly what happened? I don't know. It sounds like something she would do, so it I does. want to say yes. <laughs> so this is so this is now a particular sort of persona, I suppose, that mm. she steps into. Well, I don't even know that it was a persona because this is the person that she is on and off the stage. Right. So this is not the performing persona. This is just this actually is just Anita. She's found herself now. Yes. She's mm. found her true self. Her true self as a performer, but also just the person that she Maybe. exhibited to the world because she would go around in public like this as well. You know, she she wore her hair like flaming red. She painted a love heart, you know, on her lips. She wore a lot of coal, a lot of eyeshadow. She would go around in a monocle. She'd go <laughs> around in like in fur coats with barely any clothes underneath or just stockings or in suits. Like she was performing yeah. all the time. Yeah. Maybe look – to any listeners out there that are struggling to find their true self, maybe just go to a party. Take some drugs. <laughs> dance. No, don't. Until don't. your clothes fall from your body. We don't actually encourage you to, to do all of those I'd things. I'd give it a crack. But, hey. I don't know if I could dance until my clothes fell from my body. But <laughs> but it's, it's an option. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, like she became really famous for this style, particularly the androgyny of her. Like, yeah, this very sensual, sexual, erotic androgyny Mm. yes and she liked to trick people a lot as well like she became famous for like hanging out in in hotel bars again with her coat without much clothing on underneath and she'd like to shock people by like revealing herself or like asking waiters to get something for her and then she'd stand up and then there'd be no clothes on underneath Ah. like she just she had a lot of fun with it is what i'm saying she's figured out that this is who she is and her star is on the rise But we're in like 1918 here, cusp Mm. of 1919, and I don't know if you know anything about history, Alicia, but it wasn't a good year for Germany. No, no. There weren't a lot of good years for Germany here. Well, there were a few brief, very good years. (laughs) A few good years. But this is the end 
of the worst. And look, okay, yeah, let's not beat around the bush. This was the worst. In Germany, it was the end of the world. Mm. Things had failed hardcore. And not only that, but there was such enormous loss of life. People were so disillusioned and they were really looking for an escape. They were done with kind of populist and sentimental rubbish. They were done with propaganda. They were cynical. They were moving their attention away from politics, which had really been failing them, and back into what was immediate. You know, what is pleasurable now, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we enter the Weimar Republic. So coming out of all of that restraint and rations and nothingness Look, into that it was decadence. Wh- okay, so it was still restraint and nothingness because the Weimar Republic is really famed for, well, enormous inflation. The German government was completely broke. Basically, the end of World War I meant a huge amount of economic and social disorder. So after the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was forced to completely reduced their military to relinquish their territories and they had to pay reparations Mm. to the allies. And these payments Mm -hmm. caused, they had to give away everything. So it completely drained the economy. There were very few opportunities for revenue raising because of all of the restrictions on their industry. Because of course, you know, you wouldn't want to give them the chance to rise again and as an an international power and start taking over the world, would you? No, no chance that that could happen. No again. way. No. They would never do that. So the government decided a really, really great idea, really good idea to fix this economic problem. I mean, just print more money. Oh, that's Pauline Hansen level <laughs> logic for it's, you right there. Yeah, it's primary school kid. Like, doesn't work like that. Why don't you just print more money? I mean, but, yeah, you do ask that question when you're seven. Yeah. Well, will we not just print more money? <laughs> no. Mm, doesn't work like you that. You can't do that no. because, of course, then you get hyperinflation, like hyperinflation. Marks were worth nothing mm. and nobody had any money. So there were all of these underground black markets, bartering popped up across cities and People really developed this quite chaotic, end of the world, laissez-faire attitude. Mm. Well, which that's what I mean about that would. sort of yeah. That's what I mean about that sort of mm. decadence, right? Oh it, yeah, it's it, a decadence of attitude, but not a yeah, decadence of, of actual money. material no. goods. Yeah, and it's just that attitude of well, the world is going to end. Yeah. We have nothing, therefore let's just party. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that was kind of also part of the new Weimar Republic's ideals as well. They wanted every German citizen to feel like they had the right to express themselves freely to express themselves in word in writing in print in picture so this does lead this like philosophically they became really liberal because Mm -hmm. everyone was just like yeah well fuck it what else are we doing here let's just have a good time so we got nothing else yeah you know and we don't want to go through that again oh it's just so hard to know this from our perspective as well, isn't it? You're like, oh, but Germany, you didn't, oh, you didn't know what was coming. Yeah, things did not go well for you. But it really was the end of the world. And this led to a lot of artists being drawn to Berlin. Mm. So Josephine Baker came with the Revue Negre, Christopher Isherwood, W.H. Auden. Oh, yes, Christopher Isherwood, who, of course, 
wrote Goodbye Berlin, which is mm-hmm. where we get Cabaret from, mm-hmm. yes. Sally Balls, Very one nice. of the most iconic Weimar Republic figures. Mm-hmm. And Christopher Isherwood, of course, is also very famous for being quite involved in the Republic's very liberal queer scene. Yeah. Is this is another thing that happened is people weren't just, you know, partying a lot. They were becoming liberal in all of their ideals. Like suddenly people were allowed to experiment with sex mm, and sexuality, sexuality yeah. and gender and all kinds of things like I mean meanwhile over in Britain people are being arrested for things like subscribing to magazines that published you know vaguely queer personal ads mm. you know so this is really significant and kind of blows my mind that this little enclave of liberalism could have existed as freely as it did 100 years ago. A hundred years ago, and then to think how backwards it all became immediately yeah. after this. But I mean, that's what history does. It peaks and troughs. Mm-hmm. We have so many times that, like, and that goes back centuries yeah. as well. You know, we have such peaks of liberalism, yeah. but then they dive again into yeah, the depths because of, of course, like fascism rises, yeah. and they say, "Oh, you can't live like that." Yeah. Oh, Which is kind of where we're headed right now. Just, it is. You know, we're in the post. 80s and 90s. Right. Yeah. I don't, again, I don't want to send people yeah, diving into, into their bomb shelters, but yeah. just so you know, that's where we're headed again. No, I think we're already there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say it's going to get worse, so well, I won't. We'll see. So we'll see. <laughs> but anyway, so this leads us to German expressionism. And yes. <laughs> Sorry. This is a really. Been sh- looking forward to that bit. Well, do you want to. No, no. Okay. Well, this is a really, 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 really short intro to German Expressionism because that's all you can really give about German Expressionism. Definitely can't do it justice. You know, I remember my first introduction to German Expressionism being in my first year screen studies class when we watched the Cabinet Cabinet of Dr. Dr. Caligari, Caligari, and I was just like, "What the shit is this? That's the one, isn't it? Fuck! Oh my god! (laughs) What am I watching? This is amazing." That's the one they make everyone watch. They're like, yeah, "Yeah, you got to watch this. And you watch it and you're like, oh, wow. (laughs) And, of course, after that we got Fritz Lang's Metropolis, Mm -hmm. which I actually think I watched in high school but didn't really realise what I was watching at the time. Like I had no ability to appreciate what I was seeing Mm because I don't think they really filled it out with much context. Anyway, so this is a movement that is really all about, well, expressing the artist's inner thoughts and feelings. So it uses a lot of non-realistic elements, so lots of either like bright colours or a lot of contrast of light and dark and black and shadows and things like that, a lot of harsh geometric shapes. And it deals with issues like the absurdity of life, which really is in response to the war and the economic depression that came after it. But it's also very against bourgeois ideals more generally. So they really want to kind of overturn traditional society. And so there was this huge artistic renaissance. There's no barriers, no consequences. And the other thing is, of course, is that the Weimar Republic was so new that they didn't actually really have the government or the facilities to crack down on anything. Mm. You know, where once upon a time there might have been, well, the theatre division of the police department. These days there isn't. Like there's no money for like drug raids or for people to be policing this stuff and censoring stuff. So everyone's just able to get away with whatever they want, which is great 
for artists. It sure is. Great for artists and queer people. So yay for Weimar <laughs> Germany for that. Now, another thing that taps into expressionism and the kind of general public reaction against the bourgeois and moral standards of the past meant that as art became more and more experimental and risque, there actually had been a tradition in Berlin of nude dancing. So this wasn't necessarily new as a part of this movement. And that nude dancing, that takes us back to Rita Schizelwacker, whose name I've already <laughs> forgotten, who we heard about. Rita Sacchetto. Yes, Rita Sacchetto, who yeah, we heard yeah. about at the top of the show. So she yeah. she was pioneering that or she well, was working. Not, not pioneering, pioneering necessarily, but, yeah. Champion. Within this kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, area because there was a nude culture in Berlin and there still is a nude culture in Germany. And there's a nude um, culture everywhere, man. Which Let's go down to Maslin's Beach. <laughs> yeah. But in Germany, it's everywhere. Like, have you been to the parks in Germany? Yes, in yes, summer? indeed. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of nudity. Yeah, so much nudity. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not new. Like, these ideas came to the fore in the late 19th century, and they were inspired by philosophers like Nietzsche, mm-hmm. of course. <laughs> Uh, who wrote about like the pre-Christian ethos of vitalistic spontaneity and muscular hedonism. Sure. Which I think actually summarizes the kind of Nachtkultur, Mm. I hope that's how Mm -hmm. you say it, of the 19th century because it's originally less about eroticism, less about the sexual body and far more about the body being in tune with nature and promoting nudism as a healthy activity that was putting you in touch with nature and with kind of that more core of what it means to be human. And so there was a huge rise in nudist clubs in Germany in the early 20th century. And a lot of them were these sort of more conservative ones where they concentrated on things like gymnastics, like... And you could look it up. You can see all these amazing, like, late 19th, early 20th century black and white photos of, like, nude men doing gymnastics. I don't want to. In a field. No. No. No, thank you. But the expressionists brought along more of these subcultures of nudism. So we've got, like, feminist nacht culture, which was all about kind of seeing women as a, in a new identity. It was believed that nudity enhanced women's body consciousness, which motivated all activity that made the body strong, healthy and beautiful. Well, there's some truth to that. Yeah. For sure. Totally. It's like bos- body, posi- body positivity. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Except 120 years ago. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. But then, of course, we do get post-World War I, Weimar Berlin, we get the nude dance, which emerged as a style that was presenting the body as a liberated identity and a sexual erotic kind of thing and this is also the time when we have psychoanalysis on the rise you know Freud and Jung they're looking at the unconscious at the same time you have the rise of things like mesmerism and performers were being hypnotized mostly women were Mm. being hypnotized live on stage so there's all of these ideas that are tapping into what it means to exist beyond the cultured 
state, mm-hmm. that return to nature, return to the interior. Like a primal, primal yes, yeah, sort of self. And so a lot of the clubs started to, I guess, adv- well, they kind of had this veneer of being about like intellectualism and about all of those things, but actually it was probably just a really good excuse for everybody to gather in a in a nightclub and um, watch smutty shows, Yeah, you know. And then just call it art on intellectualism. Yeah, that's that's art. And these shows were based on the reviews of the 19th century. So those kinds of uh, vaudevillian, you know, music, dance, comedy, and then, of course, some burlesque and nudity thrown into the mix. So, look, I think it would have been a pretty good time. Definitely. Very good time. So all this is to say that somebody like Anita, who might seem very scandalous to us, was actually not that unique Mm -hmm. you know but what did set her apart was the way that she performed and there's another critic that I'm going to quote here called Topfer who I'll you know link in the show notes who writes she staged more overtly than any other Weimar dance figure the dark erotic complexity governing perceptions of relations between modernity and nakedness so basically she did start to infuse yeah her dances with her autobiography and so both her personal life and the reflection of this in her dance became more and more wild and more extreme as her personal life also became Mm. more and more extreme and so this in 1919 is where we see anita really go hard at living her true self excellent you know she's figured out who she is how old is she now she's in her Early 20s? Well, she'd be about 19. Oh, she's st- oh gosh, she hasn't even hit 20 yet. No. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> she's about 19. Yeah. yeah. But she knows who she is. Yeah. And she's a party girl. <laughs> and, like, she's a hardcore. She knows how to party. She puts Lindsay Lohan to shame, let's just say. <laughs> she was also very famously bisexual and she had many affairs with both men and women. And one of these was quite scandalous. And this is in 1919. This is a big year for her. Where she seduced a woman named Gerda and her daughter, Elsie. Uh, oh, who, yes. at the same time? Yes. Oh, oh, yes. that got gross. So the husband slash father was an Austrian officer and he was off attempting to save his career amidst the chaos of, you know, post-war. And so Anita moved in with the family and apparently made the two her sex slaves. Oh, this story is... Look, I don't know what the particulars are, but it seems to be all very consensual. The mother and daughter were lovestruck, with Gerda proclaiming that she would sacrifice everything for Anita. But apparently things... You're looking at me with such concern. No, I mean, like, were they in love with her separately or were they having, like... No, I think it was, like... threesomes. No, I think it was separate. Like, I think Anita was having it off with both of them but not at the same time. Okay, good, because in my mind there was was an incestuous threesome going on. Because, yeah, okay, the mother, I think, was jealous of her daughter. Okay, I feel better about this. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. And apparently, like, things came to a head because one night they'd come home. Gerda and Anita had been out partying, so they came home drunk and Gerda was jealous not just of the daughter but also jealous of all of the attention that Anita had been getting from others that night and because Anita had been playing up to it. So they got into a fight. Gerda scratched at Anita's face who in turn pulled out a riding crop, another ride. What is it with these people and riding crops? And then she called for Elsie to be brought out. And then things got a bit weird. Okay, they got a little bit philosophy in the book. Look, I don't think they got... Sad. I think it's yeah. more like watching, like one is watching while the others, you know, anyway. Let's not dwell on that. 
Yeah, so she returned to Berlin. <laughs> she returned to Berlin and um, she met this dude called Eberhard von Nazius. Nazius. I love the way you say it with a question at the end, like, I can help you. I don't know. <laughs> and they got married. <laughs> they got married just straight away. Really, they didn't think about it at all. And perhaps this was because her career was stalling and he was a screenwriter. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or because it was because her fucking wild affair with Gerda and Elsie had just been exposed in the tabloids. Oh, and she needed to get a little bit of uh, yes, a little bit of decorum back into her yeah, life. Yeah, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so she returned to the stage. She appeared in a series of one-woman shows at the Blumthersaal in Berlin, where she had made her debut. She's also dancing in other shows, including expressionist theatre director Max Reinhardt's shows and other cabarets and she continued acting in films but at the same time while she's having a lot of professional success she also started developing a habit that would see her through for the rest of her life and that was gosh she loved drugs oh she loved a lot of drugs Uh she loved them so hard Mm. yeah Predominantly, like, well, like cocaine at this Mostly point? cocaine. Mm. She would take hashish mixed with opium fumes. She liked a bit of a morphine injection, oh. absinthe, and a chloral ether concoction ingested by biting white rose petals that were swelled in the crystalline solution. What? Yeah. That's very... I just picture Barney in that, you know, in that... that oh, in the Simpsons episode. The Simpsons episode yeah. where he's got the plum in the hat. Yeah. Except that it's a white rose. So, I mean, at least she is being like a fucking artist about it. You know, she's classy. She's classy. But, yeah, her drugs of choice were cocaine and cognac. (laughs) And cognac. And so she was just basically off her head most of the time. Mm. And she was also taking various lovers at this time, including the famed sexologist Dr. Hirschfield, who until then had been exclusively gay. Yeah, right. Yes, and monogamous. Mm. She's also rumoured to have dated Marlena Dietrich. Oh, cool. That's so cool. And had a very scandalous and public affair with a baroness. Oh, nice. The uh, Baroness Leonie Putkamer Gassman. What a name. Yeah. Their whole affair ended up being documented in detail in court when the baron divorced her immediately (laughs) after the affair. So Now, as I said, she had, like, developed this habit of wearing a lot of furs and gaudy jewellery. She also kept a menagerie of exotic pets, which I feel like, is there any cabaret star of this period who yeah. didn't keep a menagerie yeah, of right. exotic pets? Josephine Baker did the same thing. She did. Mm-hmm. I think it must be a status thing. It is for some reason. Yeah. And one typical of image of Anita at this time goes thus. In the winter of 1919, Anita made her midnight excursions into the lobbies of Berlin's grand hotels and elegant restaurants looking like a drugged-out Eve. She stood by the foyer doorways, naked except for a sable coat, high heel pumps, a frightened baby chimpanzee hanging from her neck, and an heirloom silver brooch packed with cocaine. Oh, dear Lord. That's from uh, our mate Gibson there. I don't agree with using frightened baby chimpanzees as... uh accessories it's a different time alicia sure. it was a different time mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll just keep reminding ourselves of that she developed the nickname the snow queen i'll okay. let you guess why uh because of the, co- <laughs> all the cocaine <laughs> all the cocaine <laughs> so much cocaine she, yeah. she bloody loves it 
she even named her dancers after this hedonistic lifestyle. Uh, one of them was called cocaine. Mm-hmm. Another one was called morphine. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And in morphine, this is a description from Topfer. Clad in a black dress, she sat in a huge armchair and injected herself with a syringe. She sat deathly still for a moment. Then, according to Jenik, she thrust her body in an incredible arch like a morbid rainbow. Her movements appeared broken, incomplete, as the drug-induced visions arose before her. Finally, the drug stabbed her and she contorted into the beautiful arch again and died in the chair. So she actually injected herself or was she performing that she was injecting herself? well i think it's a performance like i think the dancers are a performance of the experience of the drug yeah so i don't think that she was genuinely injecting herself live on stage however i wouldn't put that past it though well i wouldn't i also wouldn't put it past her from having done it in the dressing room before the show yeah like i have no doubt that she was not sober when she performed most of the time. So who knows if she was actually doing it on stage or not. But it was effective. People loved her. And (laughs) look, it's the life she wanted to live, Alicia. You got to give your audience what the audience wants. You're being very judgmental. (laughs) Am I? (laughs) Sorry. And she caught the eye of many artists in her time. And by that I actually mean like as a subject of art. Like Mm -hmm. she did catch the eye of artists in a sex way. Romantic way, yeah. She also caught them in a I want to paint you way. And the first major portfolio showcasing her appeared in 1919. It was a big year for her by Charlotte Barand, the first female artist inducted into the celebrated Berlin session movement. Ah, I'm going to pretend like I know what that is. I don't know either, but it sounds impressive. It does. Now, she was actually married to an expressionist artist and the two moved in pretty elite social circles in Berlin. Um, now, Berend sketched eight canvases of Anita in various very erotic and mm-hmm. semi-nude poses. So in a lot of them, she's posed with her legs open in silk stockings, pleasuring herself, eating seductively. At the same time? Uh, yeah. <laughs> eating and pleasuring. She also drew the eye of another very famous artist. I'm going to talk about that. A little bit later because okay. we're still in 1919 slash 1920. Actually, no, we're going to move ahead to 1922. Let's do it. When she divorced Von Nathusius, whatever his name was. Oh, I forgot about him, but yeah. yeah no, I think she had too. Yeah. <laughs> because she fell in love with a woman named Susie Wanowsku and they had a very public – it seems like the type of affair that is very explosive, it's very real, but it's very short-lived. Okay. You know, yeah. no one's getting out of this – unheard yeah Mm -hmm. but then she met a man named sebastian drost whose real name was willie knoblock (laughs) why would you change that i know why would you change that i'm sorry to anyone out there whose name that is no he was a fellow nude dancer and was also involved quite a lot in berlin's queer scene she did date a lot of gay men it seems hey some of us have done that (laughs) yeah now they met at a casino and Anita, she was really pissed off because she'd run out of money at the roulette table. And so she like picked up this big, heavy bronze ashtrays, you know, like the old mm-hmm. ashtrays, they're, they're hefty. Mm. And she threw it at the croupier's head. What? Yeah. She's 
also known for her violent outbursts. She's also on cocaine. She's so. also on a lot of cocaine. And so when this guy fell to the floor, Dross sort of swept in, took her by the arm and led her away. <laughs> and I think like they were both very similar people. They were both performers, both involved in the, you know, the party scene of Berlin. Basically, they were both like drug fueled brats. Yeah, very you know? self involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so they seem maybe they were a good match. Yeah. Maybe they weren't. Drost also wrote expressionist poetry. Oh, fucking fabulous. <laughs> of Great. Of course he did. And the two published. My least favorite of all the expressionist forms. They published a collection together, a collection which was based on their dances that they oh. choreographed together. So they wrote poetry about the dances that they created. So there's this infusion of all the arts. So he became her business manager and drug dealer. Um, <laughs> best hookups in town that's so very like fear and loathing in las vegas isn't it (laughs) yeah like it's my attorney and my drug drug dealer dealer. yes Mm -hmm. and dance partner (laughs) and they opened a new production together which they called are you ready for this oh i'm so ready the dances of depravity horror and ecstasy fuck yeah (laughs) i mean look at least they go hard at everything that they're doing they are not taking any shortcuts they are like this is who we fucking are and this is what we're doing deal with us yeah dances of depravity we know who we are do you know who you are (laughs) come and see our dance and you might find out (laughs) and these dances included a few numbers called the byzantine whip dance oh that sounds good uh they also did cocaine another i guess another version of cocaine but they also did cocaine and they they did and they did cocaine. cocaine yep Martyr. That sounds like a good one. Suicide. Ooh. Morphine. Mm-hmm. Lunatic Asylum. Oh. And Night of the Borgias. Great. Yes. They all sound good. Mm-hmm. They do sound good. They yes. do sound good. And the descriptions of them are so good. I wish that I could have seen them in real life. And there's not any of these filmed? Yes, you can see some of her dances on YouTube. Oh. And I really recommend that you have a look. And also have a look at a lot of the photographs. I will post what I can get away with yeah. on Instagram. But again, I like, I'm not joking about the fact that I seriously think that I we will risk getting banned if we publish like <laughs> a lot of the stuff. But please go and do a Google and, and YouTube. So this is a quote from a review of the show and it goes Anita Barber is quite another story the distinguished audience at the Konza house found her an incontrovertible sensation her dance is a product of decay created from movement and mute erotic signs between radiating symbols of life affirmance and the longing for death the style of her degeneracy which she reveals with great sincerity manifests itself with her naked flesh a wonderfully beautiful body of a moon creature so to speak in a final stage moment anita's dance unveils the primal elements of our era horror fright decadence and waves of desire yes waves of desire i cannot help myself her partner her sebastian drost who strangles her to the sounds of beethoven's moonlight sonata what a pleasure is in no way an especially talented mimic but he offered in bronzed spurts some striking moments (laughs) sorry you're not as impressive no one quite cares He spends like Jesus. that whole paragraph talking about how fucking amazing Anita is. Yeah. And like, what a great description of it. Like, you don't need to see it, do you? If no. you've read that. No. And then like, he 
Yeah, Sebastian's all right. He's all right. He's he, okay. does, he does his best. He does his best. <laughs> but the thing I love about that is the fact that it is so descriptive, so incredibly flowery in language mm. as well. And the fact that when you wrote reviews of shows, you used to have to be that descriptive, yeah. right? Yeah. Because there's no YouTube. Because there's no YouTube. People aren't going to find mm. that otherwise. Whereas now, you know, reviews don't have to be quite as <laughs> expressive as that yeah. because they assume that you'll see a trailer, you'll yeah. see something for yeah. it, right? And I love that it talks about how much she's tapping into those. It's What she's doing is the zeitgeist. Yeah. It's, it's that horror and fright and desire mm, mm-hmm. ah i mean that is once. the key of weimar berlin isn't it yeah the coalescence of all of those things and she has perfected it in dance in dance and in her drug-addled state um, sebastian try harder yeah i love that do better so the show was a success, okay, so the critics really loved it, but it was expensive. And at the same time, Anita, when they were putting the show together, she ended up needing to take some brief respite. Because of all the cocaine? <laughs> a brief respite at a sanatorium in yeah, Vienna. I'm not surprised. Um, yeah, so she did spend a little bit of time away. It is, yeah, not surprising mm. perhaps and so they they had no money they ran out of money the show had cost them everything her stay in the asylum had cost them everything and so sebastian because he was a bit of a con man actually he tried to swindle an italian jeweler out of 50 million marks oh. now 50 million marks is not what you think it is it's not as exciting it's, it's not a, like not 17 dollars yeah right <laughs> well maybe not that but <laughs> it's not very much. it's not very much uh, and he was arrested so anita tried to pay off the indebted money but then she was arrested because she'd stolen the objects that she'd put up for collateral ah. Also, this happened in Vienna and they weren't citizens in Vienna. And so they were faced with deportation, but they had like the rest of their run (gasps) left at the theatre that they were at. So they were like, well, shit, because they needed to finish that run so that they could recoup their losses Mm. and and make money. And so after a lot of begging, basically, uh, he was granted a residential visa so that they could continue performing. But the scandal was actually really great for publicity and so a lot of people came to the show. No publicity is bad publicity, right? No. So eventually two policemen showed up at her house where she received them naked, (laughs) of course, and they issued a decree that she and Sebastian not return to Vienna for five years and Anita ripped it in half in front of them and said that she was going to wipe her ass with it. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's great. That's so great. So they did return to Berlin because they had to. They'd been kicked out of Vienna. Doesn't matter what you wipe your ass with, you still got to go. That's right. That's right. I don't think the court is going to take that as like, well, shit, she wiped her ass with it. I so guess, I guess you that's, can stay. That's all we've got. Yeah, um, we tried our best. And so, yeah, in Berlin they uh, got married. Mm-hmm. Those plucky young lovers. And as she's dancing, I guess the nature of this, I love the, the fact that as a young woman, her critics said that there wasn't enough autobiography, you know, in her performance, mm, that she mm-hmm, needed mm-hmm. more of herself. And now she's put so much of herself into her dances that they are literally named cocaine and morphine. Yeah. And this is becoming more and more of a thing, right? Like her dances are becoming more and more of not just that sensuality but agony. Yeah. It's starting to become something really monstrous, something that shows this, yeah, inner turmoil Mm, mm -hmm. because she was really starting to lose the plot. She was not a well woman. And 
she started having these violent outbursts to those around her. The pair had been touring. They were touring with a medium named Fred Marion. Mm. And she was like insulting hotel managers. She once slapped a man who insulted her during a performance uh, so hard he nearly toppled out of a chair. There's accounts of her like smashing champagne bottles at people. And so she was really descending. She was Mm. really, really Mm -hmm. losing it. And so then one day Drost abandoned her. He absconded with her jewellery, with her furs, and he booked himself passage for New York under the name Baron Sebastian von Drost. So he's also given himself a promotion or something, I guess. And Anita was devastated. And he just left. Yeah. What an asshole. Went over. Yeah. Yeah. Just like, well, you're fucked. I'm out of here. And stole all of her shit and left. So he, in New York, he went on to have a pretty scandalous bohemian career. Uh, He actually ended up becoming a journalist and he joined a sex cult called the Tantric Cult of Nyack. Sure. Yeah. But then he... um, Who hasn't joined that cult? He got tuberculosis. (laughs) I don't know. I shouldn't have laughed at that. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh at that. It's a very bohemian That is just such a cliche. It is. What a cliche. Such Look, this is the ultimate bohemian story. Honestly. So then in 1923, Anita is picking herself up. She created an all-female dance troupe and carried on her typical shenanigans of random public nudity, (laughs) drinking too much cognac. But like I said, it was starting to be clear not just to herself but to the critics and her audience that she was masking a lot of internal pain. Mm. She said that she felt like her dances were becoming a perverse masquerade, that she was cold and unfeeling. And so she was advised to give up drugs and alcohol. And so she went to stay with her mother for a bit to just have a bit of a break. No one advised her that earlier. I think the problem is that she had people like Drost in her ear. Like her husband was also her supplier. Supplier. Like, yeah, I think she was just surrounded by all of these people who were enabling her constantly. Mm. And all of the praise that she's ever received throughout her life really is because of this lifestyle that mm. she's been living. Mm-hmm. So how... How do you step away from that when that's what you are, when mm-hmm. that's what you've become? Yeah. But she met another dancer, an American born to a German evangelical preacher who was also a gay dancer. His name was Henri and he had moved to Berlin and started performing again at the Blue and Anita saw him there. He was doing this weird surreal pantomime comic piece. And she fell in love with him. And two weeks later, they oh, were married. Yeah, she's not she learning. She hasn't learned a lesson she's there, has not she? not learning much, no. So they started performing together. And, of course, with her new love came her new desire to party. And Henri liked to party. So the two travelled through Europe together partying. Oh, no. They went through, like, Cologne, Leipzig, Hamburg, Dresden, Prague, everything, partying, 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 having orgies in their hotel rooms, creating a lot of scandal wherever they went. And one scandal of particular note happened in Zagreb. So one day, Anita was out strolling around the upper town, admiring the architecture, all that, and when from St. Mark's Church she spied this entourage of military officers and everyone else around them was like, oh! <gasps> And so impressed and they all stepped and oh, stood no. away and they're like watching this military in awe. Oh, God, where's this going? Anita didn't. <laughs> Anita just stared them down. She had her monocle on. <laughs> so she's just <laughs> staring them down behind her monocle. And then a particularly impressive officer approached her and greeted her. And she replied in French, 
I don't understand your savage tongue. Turns out the man, who was quite startled at this rather rude response, was uh, King Peter II, oh. King of Yugoslavia. Sure. And so Renita was arrested. <laughs> and she spent the next six weeks in prison under suspicion of being a German spy. Oh, yeah. Uh, luckily, because Henri was American, he was able to use his citizenship to get her out. Get her out, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's another thing she did. Insult the king of Yugoslavia. She gives no fucks. <laughs> she gives no fucks. Zero fucks. Zero fucks. So when they were on this tour in Dusseldorf, they met famed expressionist painter Otto Dix and his wife Martha. Oh, okay. Now, they spent a lot of time socialising together and Martha described Anita as both a drunk, cavorting prostitute but also as so charming, so sweet, simply totally natural and delightful. Well, I don't think that the first description is necessarily an insult. <laughs> I don't think it's an insult to Anita <laughs> to be described as a drunk, cavorting prostitute. I think maybe she means that in a, like a complimentary way. Yeah, yeah, probably. I think yeah. so. Yeah. She is the wife of Otto Dix as yeah, well. I'm pretty sure that's actually. And Otto Dix was a very famous expressionist mm. painter. He's responsible for a lot of really dark, horrific paintings depicting the war. Mm. But he also painted Anita very famously. He painted a portrait called The Dancer Anita Berber. And it's a really fiery red portrait. Like there's Didn't think too hard about the title, did he? No, he didn't. It's... But that's okay. I feel like he should have gone something in red, like in the title, because that's what the portrait is. It's like a red background. She's wearing this bright red dress, red hair, red lips. And that dress is sort of transparentish as it's well. It's very it? voluptuous and, and while it's a very full dress and there's not a lot of her skin showing, it's clinging very much to yeah. her. It's kind of curtainy in a way. And one critic named Funkenstein. What? Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> Did he have a funk band? No, it's a woman. Did she have a funk band? Uh, I hope so. You can ask her. I'm going to start a funk yeah. band. <laughs> I, I think there already is one called that. And she, Funkenstein suggests that the red backdrop could represent the red light district that Anita frequented, her pale face, the drugs, and that her dress, which is quite the opposite to the bareness and the corsetry of her typical performances, augments her sexuality. Mm. And so this portrait was very successful. It was exhibited in two pivotal solo exhibitions in 1926, one in Berlin and one in Munich, and, of course, it drummed up a lot of publicity for Anita and Henri, who continue to party across Europe. They devised a new dance called Dances of Sex and Ecstasy. They're not subtle about their titles. And they ended up performing in like really seedy nightclubs and holiday resorts in the Middle East, like in Cairo, Beirut and Baghdad. And in Damascus, Henri, I guess, had finally... I don't know, came to his senses maybe, and he actually forced Anita to give up cognac. Yeah, right. Because as I said, she's really descending her lifestyle. But not cocaine? We just focus on the cognac. Yeah. Okay. Just the cognac. Small steps. Yeah. Baby steps. You can't go cold turkey. Yeah, right. Yeah, so she did, like she tried. She was becoming very weak, very ill. She suffered from delirium. She was coughing up blood. And then during a performance, Dance in White – in July 1928. So she appeared on stage in a diaphanous sheet, mm. billowing around her, and then she collapsed mm. and she was rushed to hospital. I saw where that was going. We all, all saw, saw where this where was, going. Performance was going. She was diagnosed with advanced pulmonary tuberculosis. Oh, again with the TB. Mm-hmm. And there really wasn't much that could be done. 
I mean, getting the diagnosis of TB, there's very little that can be done most of the time. But I think when you've lived that lifestyle particularly, like mm. you got really no chance, do you? Yeah. But it took them four months to make it back to Berlin. Like Really? Yes. So she had to travel while she was horrendously ill. Yeah. You know, on trains and, and what have you. Because, I mean, it is the 1920s. Mm. And so when they made it back to Berlin, they didn't even really have time to take her to her mother's house. Like she was so ill. They just took her straight to like the closest hospital, which was, it was a poor hospital. Like it wasn't, you know, one of the big ones. I don't know what the big ones were, but it was a pauper's hospital. And she apparently just wouldn't really believe that she was dying. All of her friends came to visit. They bought her gifts and mementos that she loved. But then... At just 29, of course, she did pass away. And the night that she passed away, Henri, her husband, opened a new show oh. with a new dance partner. Oh, my God. Yeah. How's did he already, that? Did he already have that ready to go? I don't know how that would have worked. I'm not sure exactly how long she was in hospital. So it's possible that when they got back to Berlin and she was in mm-hmm. hospital that he was off making arrangements for his new show. I don't know. But she was buried outside of Berlin in a pauper's grave. She had a small collection of her friends, you know, fellow bohemians who attended her funeral, but it, there was really no fanfare. And what year was this? 1928. 1928. Yeah. yeah. She didn't even make it to 30. No. <gasps> How tragic. Yeah. Well, she'd lived hard. She had. <laughs> and it's not surprising. She had burnt bright. And she did leave a legacy behind her like the papers really went mad after her death I think they suddenly realized what what an influential artist that she'd been like Mm. she was because I think so much of her life was surrounded in scandal and the papers concentrated so much on that scandal that when she died a lot of critics finally well no the critics had been writing about her performances in arts kind of publications but I think the broader public perhaps became a little bit more aware of the fact that she wasn't just this scandalous celebrity that Mm -hmm. she actually had contributed something quite important to the expressionist movement and she influenced the likes of Marlena Dietrich and Greta Garbo particularly that really decadent androgynous style Mm. but yeah I think we haven't probably really I don't know is it too much to say that we probably haven't really seen another performer quite like Anita Berber. Yeah, I suppose not quite like her, no. Yeah. And that was the story of Anita Berber. What a tragic story in the end. Yeah. But, I mean, pretty much most stories from this period of history Mm. end in tragedy. Well, I mean, look. I shouldn't laugh at that. The only thing that was coming was the war. Mm. You know, how many of her friends and, you know, all of the people in her circle would have survived that? She died before... the rise of the Nazis, you know, which was coming very mm. shortly, mm. you know. She was right on the doorstep of the rise of the Nazis. Mm. So she couldn't have continued this life for very much longer, even had obviously it not taken the toll on her that it had. It would have been a very different story from that point on. And this is a period of history that we've been in quite a lot this Mm. season. Like we keep dipping out in and out of the 20th century. (laughs) But I think that um, our next few episodes are going to take us right out of the 20th century, aren't they? We're going to move all over the slip and slide of time. I don't know what I mean. Slip and slide of time. Yeah, I was trying to think of something descriptive. The slippery dip of time. The slippery dip of time. (laughs) The slip and slide water 
fun of Good. time. Good. I'm sorry. I really, I just got this story in my brain and I couldn't let it go. I had to do it. Well, it's fascinating. She's yeah. she's quite, well, she's fabulous, but I don't mean to say that in a way that glamorizes all of the actual shit that she mm. went through. Like, Oh, yeah. You know, these are the kinds of stories where we, we see the glamour mm. and it's the kind of mm. thing that you could easily see turned into a film that would make it look like such a good time. Yeah. But, of course, we've got to remember there's all the fallout of that. Yeah. She died at 29. Yes. She was married and divorced, what? Three times. Three times. Yeah. She, well, married three times, divorced twice. And she she was unwell for so yes. much of that and had huge addictions. Yeah. So it's not all the glitz and glamour. Mm. She certainly that. presented herself with the glitz and glamour, though. Yeah. Like, but there's but just that imagine dark that edge. That image of her, though, standing in a hotel lobby with that fur coat and her gaudy jewellery and her monocle and her red hair in curls and those love heart lips. Just picture it. It is glamour. It is. It's a very decadent kind of impoverished glamour. Yeah. Isn't <laughs> impoverished it? Like, glamour. It is. Yeah. It's just so that bohemian mess yeah that people are in love with mm-hmm. i find it fascinating even though i would never survive for a second in that world i don't <laughs> think really i'd be like i need to go to bed it's <laughs> need to sleep yeah need to sleep <laughs> yeah and there's so many other stories that i didn't didn't have time to tell about her so Another you know, well, but that's another okay. time. But probably not another time. Well, not another time here. But, but you if all, you want to know more, you yes. can do your own. The, um, most of this, of most of this came from the book, "The Seven Addictions and Five Professions of Anita Barber" by Mel Gordon. So, oh, what a great name for mm. a book! Yeah, terrific. So, thank you once again for joining mm, us. Thank you for another delve it's into history. Been a long one, so thanks for sticking with us. But yeah. hopefully, she was enticing i think she was i think she was worth it and of course if you would like more content you Mm. can join us on patreon yes where we have an episode at the moment about delia derbyshire one of the pioneers of electronic music so so good so you can join us there for as little as two dollars you can of course also get your deviant women wares on etsy if you want to support us that way you can get a t-shirt or a pin and please, if nothing else, tell your friends about the podcast, review and subscribe on iTunes. Just hit that little five-star button yeah, on your that, ratings. Just go, five star just go one. hit it now. You've got your phone in front of you. Just do get it. it out. Just, just do well. it. Why what not? Do you, what do you got to lose? Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Maybe leave some nice words if you want to. You don't have to. You could just hit the five stars. But as always, uh, we'd like to say a big thank you to India Hui for the music. And to Brendan Davies for the sound. Dan, executive producer. And we'll see you all next time. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.